Okay, we're going to find out about that hope today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. I thought no, no Christmas is complete without a good reading of a good family tree. A good genealogy uh, reading is, is probably the best way to celebrate Christmas. And so I know this is the portion of the Bible that all of you wake up in the morning and you're looking at your devotions and you get to this genealogy and you're like, oh yes, this is the day that the Lord has made, right? This is going to be edifying. Um, so um, we're, we're not, I'm not going to say much about this. I'm just going to read it and then we'll talk about it. But uh, just to say that Matthew, obviously each gospel, each uh, gospel account is written typically for a particular audience. And so just keep that in mind. And Matthew is writing to a uh, mostly Jewish audience, a Jewish audience that is a bit dull, They are a bit slow, they are a bit stubborn, and they have some questions uh, that they are sort of questioning, and so Matthew is going to seek to give them an explanation here. So, with that, uh, we stand as we read God's Word this morning, so if you'll stand with me, these are God's words, even the genealogy is God's words, so please bear with me. I had these all in my head pronounced exactly the way the Hebrew names would have been, but I have no idea what's going to come out right now, all right? So, just bear with me as we read through the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadav, and Abinadab, the father of Nishan, and Nishan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. <sighs> Breathe. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Jerome, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shetiel, and the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Ab- Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azer, and Azer, the father of Zodak, and Zodak, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from deportation to Babylon um, to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But he considered these things, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the prophets had spoken. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful, beautiful story. What an amazing reality that we get to look into today. But not only that, God, this, this story, our own lives and our own stories, Father, are woven into this reality here that we've just read. We are impacted. This whole world is impacted, according to the promise, in fact, by the reality of this story. And so, God, I pray that even in these next few moments, just, just allow us to see the Christmas story, maybe from an angle that we hadn't seen it before, but God, just let us see the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the wisdom, your wisdom, God, in fulfilling your promises to your people, that we who sit here today might be redeemed by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, that we might be adopted into your family, that we might be considered heirs to the promise. And so, Lord, um, bless this time. Lord, bless your word today. Encourage your church this Christmas with these words in your name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you were going to write an account of something that is considered, that is actually even titled the gospel according to Matthew in your Bible, so the gospel, the word gospel means good news. And so if you were going to write an account of something that is considered to be really good news, um, you probably would not start with a genealogy, right? That pr probably would not be the way in our culture, in our thinking, that we would begin something so significant, right? That, that just wouldn't be the way we think. But Matthew is trying to convince his audience, mostly a Jewish audience, that Jesus, this Jesus who we just read about in verses 18 to 25, this Jesus who has been born, who is live, living on this earth, that this Jesus really is the Messiah. That he really is the one that we've been waiting for, right? The songs that we sang were just beautiful today. Like you, It just preached my message. I could just say amen, we could just go home, right? Uh, it, it literally was just talking about the promises of God. And, and so, so Matthew is trying to convince a group of Jews who are skeptical. They have questions. They, you can't just simply say, if, in fact, if the story would have just started in verse 18, which is the way we would have written the story, this is the way the birth of Jesus came to be, they would, they would dismiss it outright. But for, for the Jews, genealogy, their heritage, their roots mattered big time. It was a big, big deal. And that, that's actually more of a big deal to many of us these days, right? People are tracing back their roots. But really, it hasn't been as big a deal. For them, it mattered big time. In fact, it's so interesting in this story, just to tell you how dull and maybe aloof to the promises of God that the, the Israelites would have been at this moment, 
the magi in this story, I find it funny that later on in Matthew, it's the non-Jewish magi who are actually paying attention, right? They're the ones that seem to get it. And they seem to pay attention to the promises of God and trace everything. And, and they find Jesus, right? And they give him gifts. And they worship. It's this crazy thing. So, so just, just the Israelites are dull here. They are, they're not paying attention. They're, they, but they're, the reason why is because they're trusting in something other than the promises of God. They're looking to something other than that. And so, so, so Matthew is going to write an account of Jesus' life, the Messiah, and he's going to do it in such a way as to convince them. So therefore, if you're going to convince a Jew that Jesus really is who he says he is, then you need to figure out what his pedigree is. You need to, you need to trace his roots back and make sure he's got the right credentials, right? Because the promises of God were pretty clear as to how this was supposed to go. And that's exactly what... Matthew is going to do for us today. And I think uh, Matthew's going to do it in such a way that's also going to confront these very uh, self-important, arrogant Israelites who are really proud of their heritage. He's going to confront that in this genealogy. If you didn't pick up on it already, we're going to get to it in just a moment. Um, Genealogies, just to give you another little point here before we go into the text, Genealogies were important to, the, to ancient Israelites in so many ways. In fact, in, when the Israelites entered the promised land, the land that they were allotted and the, the, the amount and the type of land that they were given was allotted according to their, their tribe, according to their, genealog- their, their heritage. Right? So the Benjamites got this place of land over here, you know, and the, the Judah, the tribe of Judah got this piece of land and, and so on and so forth. And so, so it was important. It was important in David's time because it was the, through the, the genealogy that they would know and they would keep track of the kingly lineage, right? Who, who was going to be the successors to the throne? This is how they kept track of that stuff. When the Israelites were thrown into exile in Babylon for their disobedience to God, when they came back to Israel and they rebuilt the temple, it was through the genealogy that they reestablished their whole society and ordered things. And even the way that they rebuilt the wall uh, right in Nehemiah that was according to tribes, and, and groups. They worked together in their families. And so genealogies were really important things to the Jews. In fact, when they reestablished worship in Israel in those days, they, they went back to their heritage. They went back to their roots and traced and found out who the, the descendants of Aaron were so that they could establish the priesthood who would lead the worship in Israel. And so it was incredibly important. So the question is, uh, why is it important to us? <laughs> There's important things for them, without a doubt. But what, what, is it, what is really important about the genealogy of Jesus here uh, in Matthew chapter 1 that will actually be far more edifying than your devotional reading when you're going through? In fact, just a note, um, if you've if you're ever read through the Bible and you get to places like 1 Chronicles chapter, chapter 1, like, do you know the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles is all genealogy, right? And I know that none of you have read that all the way through, right? I know that because I don't think I've ever read it all the way through. In fact, that's where I put on my audio Bible, and I put it on, and I go do some stuff. And then I come back, and I go, yeah, I read it. <laughs> you know, it's good, right? right? None of us have ever read that. But, but if you look, like the Bible is filled with genealogies. The, the book of Genesis is filled with genealogies because it points to something really significant about our faith, about their faith, and it's really important for us as well. So, 
first, first reason why I believe that it is really, uh, really important. First is, it, the, the, it tells us that the birth of Jesus is rooted in history. It's rooted in historical facts, right? The genealogies, in fact, you, many people in our day, many, many people I know that I work with, that you work with, that you might know, are really skeptical, right? And you may have many people over the course of history who say that this, this religion thing, that's really cute for you. You know, this little thing you have going on, this little re- religion of yours, that's kind of a cute little thing. This little story of the Bible, that's a nice, cute little fairy tale. It's a cool little mythological story, right? But the reality is when someone says that to you, you, could, you, can, you, you have an answer to that. You can simply come back to the Bible and go, you have never, ever read a fairy tale with this kind of historical detail in it. Fairy tales don't begin with a long genealogical record trying to help you understand that the characters in the story that's about to, be, that's about to unfold were real characters set in real time who had real lives, right? And the Bible just con- continually has these lists of people just to let you know the historical setting and the families and the names of people that were involved in this amazing redemptive story of God. And so, and so the genealogy reminds us about that, that the birth and the life and the ministry and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus is, is, a, is set in a historical reality. This stuff came about in history. It is a real thing. That, in fact, um, I remember... When I first became a Christian, I was sitting in the dentist office in my hometown. I was 18, 19 years old. And I remember sitting there, and uh, there's a Time magazine, cover of Time magazine was sitting there. And I'm really new in my faith. And so I'm, I'm struggling and thinking about these things a lot. And, and so I grew up skeptical about this whole thing. And so I see this Time magazine thing about how David, that, that basically discounting Christianity because they had never found any archaeological facts or anything to verify that David was a real person and existed in history, right? And so I remember reading that, you know, and, and I'm, I'm a new Christian. I'm just like, ah, oh, bummer, you know, like, okay. This, this most central figure, right, central, central enough for Matthew to put it here as a crucial turning point in the, in the genealogy, and this central fig, figure to our faith, uh, somehow we have no record in all the archaeological digs, we found all kinds of cool stuff. We've never found any proof that David exists. Well, it was probably seven years later. I was in Madison, South Dakota as a youth pastor, and I, get, I see another article. And it's about, lo and behold, we found, uh, through archaeological dig, we found artifacts that prove that David existed. Right? And uh, archaeology is an amazing thing. And what's really cool about archaeology, just to give you, I know you're really, I'm already talking about genealogies, now I'm into archaeology, and you're just going like, holy smokes, are we going to talk about something edifying here? But what's really cool about archaeology, especially the last 40, 50 years, just so you know, it's been hijacked by secular, by by secular humanists, I mean, that, that absolutely are against our faith, right? And what's amazing about that is that they've never been able to find in, archaeology, in archaeological digs things that actually discount the Bible. They keep only finding stuff that proves that, it, that it's real, right? These, these characters and the artifacts that we keep finding just keep proving. And you know if there was something to discount it, like that first article, they would absolutely have it all over, all over the world news. Like it would be big-time news. We've finally proven that Christianity is not real, 
right? And so, so it's incredible uh, to, to see that these figures in our Bible, these figures in here are real people, and it's really crucial for us to see that this is the birth of Jesus, the story of Jesus Christ, and his coming to this earth in the flesh is rooted in historical reality, right? These figures existed. They lived on this earth. They walked on the earth. Um, second, or actually also, it also establishes the humanity of Jesus. The fact that Jesus was a real person, right? Uh, Jesus was someone who, he's not some mythological figure. He actually had, he was a real man with a real family tree. He had parents, grandparents, brothers, sisters, cousins, like they existed. And so this, the genealogy actually gives us evidence that, that, that this, he was actually human. He did actually come here. And there's even more evidence beyond that, that, that uh, pertain to Jesus' life on this earth that we don't have time to mess with. So, secondly, though, so it's important for us to understand the story of Christmas is rooted in history. And that's one thing that the genealogy teaches us. But secondly, uh, the genealogy teaches us that the birth of Jesus is rooted in the sovereignty of God. When you look at these names that I just read, I just want you to know something about these names. They are people just like you and me. Pastor Nick said this last week as we were talking about the Hall of Faith, the last couple weeks as we were talking about the Hall of Faith in the book of Hebrews. It's easy for us to look at the characters in the Bible and say, man, these guys were giants, right? Which is actually kind of scary because you know you read these stories? We're going to get into a few of these stories and it's not going to be very pg uh, it's a little bit crazy. These characters were, they were scoundrels sometimes, and they were not very good. And, and so the reality is this, this genealogy is filled with ordinary people with ordinary lives who at the time in which they lived, even in this moment in Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 with Mary and Joseph, they had absolutely no idea that they were being, they were, they were included in and a part of something that was going to have earth-shattering consequences, right? They were a part of something so huge, and they were completely clueless. They woke up in the morning, they put their clothes on, they went to work, they opened up their business, they fed their families, they kissed their wife goodbye, the wife kissed their husband goodbye, the, they, they did the normal stuff. These are normal people. We need to know that because we read the Bible as if these are like some really far out there kind of people. These are people just like you and just like me who were living their lives in the presence of God, unaware sometimes of how incredible uh, the things around them were unfolding and even leading to a ma- like the fulfillment of massive earth-shattering truths and promises, Right? Um, and and so, so when I say that it's rooted in God's sovereignty, that even though we see this list of people who were living their lives, what we often don't see in our own lives as well as in their lives, what they didn't see, is the hand of God moving them, working in them, working in them opening their store every day, working in them feeding their families, talking to their kids about the promises of God of old, telling the old stories. The, what, we, what we don't see is that God's hand is in all of those, all the little details of life. Every tiny little thing that God was... When Joseph woke up and found out, for instance, that his fiance was pregnant... Like, that's an earth-shattering deal. And he reacted probably the way any of us would. I won't say it that way, but... Oh, crud. Right? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Like, normal, right? Uh Uh-oh. 
Now what? Panic. Uh-oh. What are we going to do? Figuring out a plan, right? These are, these are normal people who woke up, had no idea that what was going on. God had to enter in. God had to intervene and work. And so we see that the birth of Jesus is rooted in, in the sovereign hand of God, or it, 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 in God's sovereignty, that God is working in the lives and through the lives and behind the scenes of all of these people's ordinary daily stuff to accomplish things that we can't even comprehend. Uh, in Habakkuk, we talked about that. I think Pastor Nick said that here recently. Like, like that God was, he says, I'm doing things that even if I told you, you wouldn't believe them. And could you imagine if Joseph, a month before this, would have got the heads up? Hey, your fiance is going to get pregnant. But don't worry. Don't worry. It's the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit did it, right? And uh, don't worry. You know, that's actually what he did wake up to, right, by the way? Imagine that. Like, the, the, the angel has to, like, intervene and tell him, hey, uh, what's, what's, what's conceived in your wife is through the Holy Spirit. What's amazing about that story is that Joseph believed that whole thing. And he believed that this, was the, that this was God working. He actually believed the word of the Lord through this angel. And he woke up and he trusted God in that. Just like Noah had to do something that no one understood at the time. Imagine Joseph. He's waking up from this dream going, okay, this is God. It's from the Holy Spirit. And now he's got to convince his friends, his family, his neighbors, the Sanhedrin, you know, to not stone his fiance to death, Right? She hasn't been with anybody. Like, imagine that story, right? Like, no, no, don't worry, guys. No, 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 no. It's not what you think, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, Joseph, <laughs> what's going on here? Whatever you say. But the sovereign hand of God is at work throughout history. Listen, this, this is so cool. That Think about, think about the, in, in the Old Testament how God's providence, his sovereign hand, overrides every human way of thinking. His wisdom is, is above our wisdom. He, he does things in ways that only can be explained by the, the power of God. Everything is turned upside down. In the Old Testament, in fact, one of the things I think is really cool is, uh, is how in their culture, the older brother, the older son, would have been the one who would inherit everything, would have been, and, and when I say inherit everything, he also inherited the responsibility of the father. So everybody always thinks that everybody else got gypped, you know, down here. But the reality is the father took care of the whole family, right? When the father died, the firstborn son took over and got the inheritance of everything the father owned, but he also took over the responsibility of taking care of the family, right? So it wasn't as if he just got some, all the stuff and he took off, you know, and went and had a vacation in, in Maui. He, he actually uh, took on the responsibility of taking care of the family just like the father was, right? And so, and so but, but the firstborn son was a crucial piece of how, they, how inheritance worked. You know, so do you realize that every crucial figure in the Old Testament was a younger brother? Every single one. Every, Abraham was the younger brother. He wasn't the older brother. Isaac was chosen, not Ishmael. Jacob was chosen, not Esau, the older. Judah was chosen, not Reuben. The older, cho- younger chosen over the older. Perez was chosen, again, younger. Even David, this key figure, right? David was not the oldest, and he was not the best looking. He was considered the ruddy little shepherd boy, right? Who smelled Right? All these handsome brothers he had, he was like the runt of the litter, right? And God chooses him. He's the one whom God is going to work through 
right? It, this is an incredible thing, but you can just see the sovereign hand of God orchestrating. And listen how he orchestrates it. This is how sovereign God is. This is how awesome this is. You know, you, know, you, you think about Jacob and Esau. If you know that story, the way in which Jacob gets chosen over Esau is through the feud between husband and wife, right? You never knew that the fight that you had this morning on the way to church could be the providence of God working out some massive, miraculous thing for his purposes, right? Like literally, God uses the fact that, that, that Abraham and Sarah favored one kid over the other. God uses these things, and Jacob and, and Rebecca actually. God uses even the feud, even the, the favoritism of kids, which is horrible. Don't do that, right? But, but God used that. God actually worked in that. It wasn't, in, it, wasn't, it wasn't like that somehow was thwarting the purposes of God. And that's what we find out in the Bible, that God sovereignly is working and absolutely nothing will thwart his purposes. Absolutely nothing. And he works it in such a way that no human being can get credit for it. He twists all of our human logic and all of our wisdom upside down and he works. This is what he does in your life. If, if you're paying attention to what God's up to in your life, he works in ways that, you, that sometimes you miss it and I miss it. And you know why? Because my wisdom and my logic says things ought to work in this way. In God's wisdom, in God's economy, it works completely the opposite, and in the end, it's always better. And I'm like, oh, why didn't I think of that? Well, I'm not God, Right? And I didn't realize that God was doing this in that situation. I didn't realize when I, you know, when they were fighting with their, the patriarchs are fighting with their wife. He didn't realize that God was working out his promises through this little feud that they were having, right? No idea. Nothing can thwart the purposes of God. So Jesus' birth is rooted in the sovereignty of God. God is working behind the scenes of people's lives. And, and, and we'll say this at the end, but he's doing that in your life now, too. Be aware, this is what he's doing in the life of his church, in the life of you and I right now. Thirdly, the birth of Jesus, the, the genealogy tells us, you're wondering if we're actually going to get to the genealogy. Just hold up. We're going to get there. The birth of Jesus is rooted in God's promises. You'll notice in the genealogy that it's divided into three sections with three crucial turning points at each of those. It's divided first into the the, uh, into Abraham, right? It begins with Abraham. And in Abraham, we know the promises of God. Were, in fact, before I even go into that, that each of these three key points in this genealogy, there was a promise made to individuals, and the promise always concerned a son, a child being born. Pretty interesting. So Abraham is called in Genesis chapter 12, and he's He's told he's going to be a great nation. So we see this, this, the beginnings of this massive call. Abraham's going to be, he's, this promise, this covenant is made with Abraham. He's going to be a great nation. His, his, his uh, um, what is it? Descendants. There we go. Thank you. His descendants are going to be as far as, the, as much as the sand of the seashore, it says, right? And so Abraham is given this promise. And then you see all this unfold in the Old Testament where through all kinds of circumstances, eventually Abraham has a son. God says, I'm going to give you a son, and it's going to be through the descendants, through this son, 
that, that you're going to be made into a great nation. Well, it came through incredible, crazy circumstances, right? He waited till Abraham was too old. His wife was too old. Again, the logic, our logic doesn't make sense. Why not do this when they're young? No, no, because then they could pat themselves on the back. And so God does it in such a way you can't take credit. So Sarah has a baby at a very old age, uh, has Isaac, and so and on and on the story goes. And so in, in Genesis chapter 22, this promise is reiterated. It says this, that in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So God is saying to Abraham and Sarah, it's through your offspring, this child that's going to be born, that, that all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And notice the singularity of this, through your offspring. Uh, Genesis, or Galatians chapter 3 the Apostle Paul says something I think is incredibly profound. He's talking to this church that's actually trying to say that it's Jesus plus a bunch of other stuff. And he says to them, now the promise, this is Genesis, or Galatians 3.16, he says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And then Paul, I love this, he, he, he knows this is an issue, so he seeks to clarify He says, it does not say to offsprings. That is, he says, referring to many offsprings. But he's saying the promise to Abraham was about one offspring. So he clarifies, says, but it's referring to one. And then he says it even just clearer, to your offspring who is Christ. And so in in the, the genealogy here, in this, we see... God, or or, or Matthew, is saying to these Jewish people, he starts with Abraham. He's saying, God made a promise to Abraham, and that promise was that there was going to be a child, and that child ultimately is going to be Jesus. And so you have this really large nation that's going to be, that's going to come about, and, and through that nation, through this group of people, there's going to be one offspring who's going to bless the whole world. And Paul clarifies it. It's the Christ. It's the Messiah. This is so crucial for Matthew's readers. But it's also, God talks about his promise here, or, or Matthew lays out the promise to David. So see this now. We've got this whole nation in Abraham, and now he's going to narrow it down. Because in, in, in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find out that, through, that it's through the line of Judah. We actually know this clear back in Genesis. But it's through the line of Judah. So we have this whole nation, all these tribes, but it's through one tribe within that nation that the Messiah is supposed to come. And that's through the line of the tribe of Judah. And so Matthew, convincing these Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, he starts out with Abraham because they all, by the way, would have claimed to be sons of Abraham. That was their big claim still to this day, actually. And, and they were really proud of that. And then he narrows it down, however, to the very line within that nation in which Jesus is going to come. And so therefore, he, he focuses on David. And he promises David in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that there's going to be a son who's going to come and be born. right? But we know that that son that was born was just a foreshadow of the son, the offspring that was going to come, and that was Jesus. And then lastly, the third phase here, we see that God promise, makes promises to the exiles. And so this is a whole other section that we don't even have time. I wish we could talk more about but But God's people disobeyed God so horrendously that God turned them over into captivity to Babylon. You know the story of Nebuchadnezzar 
right? And so, so God allows them to be taken over by their enemies. And, there's this, and so in, in the midst of that, he makes promises, however, that even though they are being hauled out of their country, they are being, uh, having the temple torn down. So they have literally, they're going to lose, he's telling them actually through the book of Isaiah, the, the words that were spoken of here today, already read for us. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, he's, he's, he's basically telling them, you're going to lose your town, you're going to lose your temple, you're going to lose your freedom, you're going to lose everything. But, but, he makes a promise. He makes a promise. This is what Isaiah 7 verse 14 is all about. Seven, this is what Isaiah chapter 9 that we read today, that to us a son is given, to us a son is born, to us a son will be given. He should be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting God, Mighty Father, Everlasting Something like that. Mighty God, everlasting Father. I should have just kept it back up there, right? And, uh, right? And, but, but down further in that text, it says of his government there will be no end. And his throne will be forever. Right? There's an eternal aspect to this. And so, so he's making a promise here that there's, there's a hope. And so he's made a, a very promise that, again, there's going to be a son. And that promise ultimately gets fulfilled in this eternal king who will come in the story, which is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It's in the coming of the Messiah. And so we find in, in the genealogy, when it comes to the promises of God, uh, G, it tells us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's born of a virgin. Here's our, our faith, our uh, Apostles' Creed right here. He's, he's born of a virgin. It reminds us that he's descended from the line of Judah. It reminds us, therefore, he's qualified to be the Savior of the world. This really is the one whom we have hoped for. This is the one that Israel has longed for. He's come, and his name is Jesus. Now, now we'll get to the fun part. All right? Fourth point here. The birth of Jesus is rooted in God's grace. Um. Let's actually look at the uh, genealogy here. It's rooted in, in God's grace. Now, if, if you were to ask a Jewish person to list four women that they would put in their genealogy, they would probably list names like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, probably Leah. You would have to, even though there's a little feud going on there. But you'd probably have to put Leah. She's literally the mother of almost the whole nation of every tribe, right? You probably have those four women. Number one, just to note, they didn't put women in the genealogies back then. Right? It was the genealogies, the record of families was often recorded by the father, the, the, the grandfather, the, right? The husband. And so if you look back in the Old Testament, not many genealogies have even a mention of women. It's, and so it's very purposeful on Matthew's part here to put these women here and to put the ones that he did. It's not a mistake. And I believe, uh, so instead of Rebecca and Rachel and Leah and Sarah, he puts Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And then also Mary, by the way, too, at the very end, right? Uh, she's a given. But these four women listed in the genealogy of Jesus here by Matthew is no mistake. And I believe it points so powerfully to the, to the grace of God. That the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus' birth is rooted in God's grace. Let me tell you why. Um, <laughs> I want it so badly to tell this story, but I won't. Um, so Tamar, look, look at what he says here. He begins right away. He says, uh, that Judah, <laughs> I love this even. He says, Jacob, the father of Judah, this is in verse 2, 
and his brothers, by the way, all thugs, total thugs, right? If you've, re- if you've read Genesis 36 and 37, 38, these are not nice boys, right? In fact, it's Judah and his brothers who threw Joseph, their younger brother, into a well and then sold him off to some Egyptian uh, you know, guys going by, or some, no, some gypsies going by who sold him to the Egyptians, right? And they, that was their better plan. They were going to just leave him for dead, but they decided, hey, we can make some money off of our brother. So they sold him, and then they tore his clothes up, put blood on it, and told his father, who favored his Joseph as the, the younger brother, right? There's some favoritism, some family tension, right? Who favored Joseph. He, they take the, the clothes back of Joseph and tell the father he was eaten by a wild animal. Now, these are some nice boys, Right? You talk about some family history here. Like, this is, this, is, this is not some nice kids here. And Judah is one of those. Um, you have to go back and read the rest of it to see what happened. Judah does come around, however, uh, and then he doesn't. So, anyway, again, you have to go read it. But, but it says, Judah and his brothers, this is the line of Jesus. This is the tribe from which Jesus is going to come. He says, Judah, and then he says, at Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and on it goes. Tamar, in Genesis chapter 38, is, prostitutes herself out in an incestuous way in order to continue the line of Jesus. There you go. I'll just say that. Sorry, all the kids in the room. All right, yeah. So, we'll, we'll say no more. But isn't it interesting Matthew puts her in there? Pretty interesting that Matthew puts her in there. Just think about that for a minute. We'll come back to that. And then you have Rahab, another another prostitute, who was in Jericho, whom, whom was obedient to God in helping the Israelite spies escape out of Jericho and not be killed, right? And, and yet she, she was formerly a prostitute, and yet, and yet it says of her... Uh, We'll go down here. It says, uh, and the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, here's what's crazy. Boaz is a crucial figure in the whole book of Ruth, right? If you read the, the love story, this beautiful love story of Ruth. In fact, Pastor Nick has preached it for Christmas once because it's in the Christmas story, right? And so you have Boaz, this crucial figure in Israel's history, also of the line of Judah. And so... Boaz, his mother, was Rahab, right? The prostitute from Jericho. It's amazing. And then you have Ruth herself. And listen to this. Ruth, uh, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David, right? Um, Ruth was a Moabite woman, and if you know back in Deuteronomy chapter 23, uh, the Moabites were... I mean, massive enemies of God, and of which God said, I will never allow a Moabite. I mean, basically, I'm, I'm not going to let them live, right? Uh, he, they, they had been so horrible to the Israelites, and yet here is Ruth, uh, right out of, a, I mean, a beautiful, one of the beautiful stories in the Bible, in the book of Ruth. Here's Ruth, a Moabite woman um, who God graciously works through to continue the line of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? It's beautiful. And then... I love this. And then it says, and David. So we switch gears to David now. 
David is the father. Now, just, by the way, those are just the ones we're talking about. Jacob was a trickster. I mean, none of these guys. So I'm just pointing out the fact that he put four women in here. We could talk about the guys because they're all like in trouble, right? <laughs> they all have some stuff, all right? There's some family things going on. They need some counseling, uh, serious discipleship. Um, but I love this. He says, and David was the father of Solomon. I mean, the way he says this, man, just like, by the wife of Uriah. Now, he's talking about Bathsheba there. And you know the story, probably, of Bathsheba, where David sees Bathsheba while Uriah is out at war. Now, get this, Uriah is a Hittite. He's not even an Israelite. He's fighting with the Israelites. And he is, in that story, in the book of Kings, he's the honorable man. Right? It's a powerful story. When you look at it, Uriah is the one who is honorable, and David the king, not so much, sees his wife and goes and commits adultery. And, and it's interesting that Matthew doesn't just not mention Bathsheba, but he, he makes it even more clear by, by, his, by Uriah, or by U, the wife of Uriah, whom David set him up and got him killed so that he could marry Bathsheba. So if you're wondering if there's scandal in the Bible, right? There's, there's a lot of scandal here. Now, I, I want to just pause right here because it sounds like we're just going like, man, wow, you know, this is crazy. But listen, this is one of the things that gives credibility to the Christian faith. Do you know that? You will not find in other religions who talk about their characters, their heroes, so to speak, you will not find the type of honesty at all that you find here. The characters in, in other faiths are seen as literally as these heroes that ride in on white shining horses and do no wrong. But, but what gives credibility to this story is that these were real people. And God, in, in pinning these things, writes down in all honesty, this is, what is, this is what life and this is what people who are actually traced all the way back to Adam, this is the reality. We are born in sin we, we need a Savior, right? And this points to that reality, and yet it points and highlights not the sinfulness. We could, we could just sort of ooh and ah about how awful some of these people are, but the, what that points us to is the incredible grace of God. It points us to his, his unbelieving, unbelievable redeeming grace that he works through all of us. There is no one who's beyond redemption Right? He, he's at work in such incredible ways. And here we see this Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and even this little peasant girl named Mary, who's probably a 16-year-old young girl scared out of her wits. And she's, you know, goo-goo-gaga eyes over this guy, Joseph. And now the wheels just came off because of the will of God. Right? Like, crazy, crazy. So here's what I want to say about this. What, why, would, why would Matthew do this? There's no doubt he has a purpose in this. And most commentators and scholars over the years, I think, agree a lot on this. But first of all, it just tells us of God's grace, as I've already mentioned. Um, secondly, Matthew is writing to a group of Israelites who, if you read the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, they are really proud of their heritage. And they think... That because they're of the proper lineage, 
that they have favor with God. They think that somehow because they're Israelites and, you know, I'm a Benjamite. You know, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm, I'm from Judah. You know, my, my, my roots go back to Judah. I'm good with God. In fact, I'm, they, they would claim to be pure. They would say oftentimes to Jesus, hey, we are sons of Abraham. And Matthew is going, oh, really? Your hope? Your hope for redemption? Your, your, your confidence before God is in your pure genealogical line? Well, let's just take a look at that. Let's just see, right? And so in one sense, he's confronting their arrogance and he's poking into their insufficient hope that is no hope at all. And in fact, it's a, it, it also says something to us that if our hope is somehow in our heritage and in our roots, then we don't have any hope, right? This is not a hope. The hope is in, when we look at these characters, in fact, he's not simply even saying like, well, you got some rough, shady characters in your past here. He's not just saying, he's not simply saying that. What he's, I think what the genealogical record actually tells us is, is saying to these pure and self-righteous Pharisees and Sanhedrin, what he's saying to these religious leaders is that Rahab is a godly woman. That Ruth, the Moabite, is a godly woman whom God not just, God didn't just like put up with them in order for them to be a part of the story and the line of Jesus. No, these are women who were prostitutes, but no longer. These, these are women who had, this, this, this whole story of David, this is a bad situation, but no more. Even in that, God in his power and his sovereignty worked through a terrible situation and a terrible mistake of David. But in that, he still brought about the Messiah, Jesus. Nothing can thwart his purposes, right? He's, He's not pointing out these women to go, these are terrible women, but look, they're in the genealogy of Jesus. No, these are women whom God used. Rahab became a central part of the story of God, redemptive story of God. She's no longer characterized by the way she was in Jericho. She is now a daughter of God. Isn't that incredible? And I think that's a slap in the face to these self-righteous Pharisees who are pointing at Jesus all the time like, you're, 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 not, you're not of the right lineage. You don't have it all put together. And Jesus is saying, it's, if you put your hope, do you put your hope in your genealogy or do you put your hope in the grace of God? Where's your hope at today? Like, where is your hope today? You could, we could go back through this whole thing. Your life is actually rooted in history as well. The historical things going on right now in your time, in your way, God is working out his purposes in his people right now, and there are massive implications for history. God is sovereignly directing the steps of your life, every tiny detail for his purposes. Be confident about that. He's at work in these things. Even the things that you and I, I I find it interesting in the Christmas story, even in the next verses, you get to verse 18, you see what unfolds with Mary and Joseph. I just want us to, I'll I'll say something here, I want us to be really cautious. We would have judged them. You know that? You would have judged Mary. Can I just be upfront about that? You would have been whispering too, just like they did in their day. You would have been going, pfft. Did you see what happened to Mary? Yeah. We'd have probably had to have some church discipline. (laughs) But really, 
God works in incredible ways. And we need to pray for God to, to give us the ability to see the ways in which he works. He, he's sovereignly working. And, and so our own lives are rooted in and directed by the sovereign hand of God. He's at work. Be encouraged. Pray for God to open our eyes that we would see what he's doing. Our own lives are rooted in the promises of God, right? The, the very promises. We are here today worshiping and singing and hearing the word of God because of the promises of God. They, they, those promises are for you and for me. The very reality that um, I love John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. The, the promises of, of Acts 32, I love he says, uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And he says the promise is for you and for your children. These promises are for us, and our very lives are rooted in the grace of God. I think Nick's probably said it the last five weeks, but I'll say it again. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace that you have been saved, and this is not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. Right? God works in such a way to save you that is according to his wisdom so that you and I can't boast. We can't pat ourselves on the back. We can't look down at our neighbor. We can't look, because it's not us. I love Titus 3, in verses 4 and 5, he says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we have done, not because of our heritage, our genealogy, it says, but because of his mercy. Our own, our own lives are rooted in the mercy of God. And so, just as the, 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 the story of the birth of Christ is rooted in God's grace, so our, our own redemptive story as well is wrapped up in that same grace. And we are here today because of the mercy of God. And so when you look at these little details in the Christmas story, um, I pray that you will be encouraged this Christmas. Um, that there's absolutely, there's absolutely nothing beyond the redemptive work of God. Nothing. Nothing. You read these characters and you go, there's nothing beyond God's redemptive work. He will work in ways that we can't even comprehend. And through people, in fact, maybe it will cause us even to be more gracious to people that we sometimes uh, maybe look down upon. And, and uh, like, like a lot of the people in this story, we, we may actually be the ones going, that person's out to lunch. <laughs> right? You might be that person, right? If you're not sure if you know any of those people, then you might be the one, right? I'm just saying... <laughs> Right? But be encouraged, right? Because, because by the grace of God, right? But for the grace of God, where would we be? And so, um, so yeah. So be encouraged this Christmas. Your life, you're here, breathing, living. You're going to celebrate Christmas this week with your families. Remind one another of the reality of Christmas story. The reality, it's, it's rooted in history. It's directed by the sovereign work of God. Even the, the Trinity is in this whole chapter, right? The, I thought that was cool. We sang that. It's like, here it is. Uh, and that, that it's rooted also in the promises of God, and it's rooted in his grace alone. So trust him alone. Let's pray.